everyone. You're watching The Jacobin Show, and I'm your host, Jen Pan. Thanks, as always, for tuning in and watching, and please hit like and subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, all right, so on today's show, I will first be speaking to Will Summer. He is a journalist over at The Daily Beast, and I'm going to be speaking to him about kind of the state of QAnon and other conspiracist and far-right extremist groups uh, sort of since the January 6th Capitol riot of 2020 through to today. Uh, we're going to be looking at what those groups have been up to, what they look like now, whether they still have any influence over the Republican Party and what that could mean leading up to midterms. Uh, after Will, I'm going to be speaking to two scholars over at Stanford University about uh, Columbia's upcoming presidential election. They just had their first round of elections and left-wing candidate Gustavo Petro is now in the lead, but he's going to head to a runoff with a sort of right-wing populist candidate later this month. So I'm going to be sitting down with those two scholars and speaking about that election and, and what it could mean for Colombia and also the Latin American left in general. Uh, and finally, I am very excited to have Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila back on the channel. You, of course, remember them as the uh, co-hosts of Jacobin Weekends from last year. Uh, they've been busy, but we have managed to get them back. I'm going to be speaking with both of them about the recent California election and kind of their their thoughts on, on what happened in both L.A. and in San Francisco, uh, what the left can kind of learn from these two elections and what they all mean for California politics uh, going forward. So I, like I said, that is coming up. I'm very excited to have Anna and Nando back. Uh, but first, let's get to Will. All right, so I'm now here with Will Summer. He is a politics reporter for the Daily Beast, also the co-host of the podcast Fever Dreams, and he is currently working on a book on QAnon titled Trust the Plan. Will, good to see you. Thanks for having me. So obviously, as I just mentioned, uh, you report on QAnon and other elements of the right, among other things. And uh, I, you know, I really wanted to have you on today to kind of, I guess, take stock of the Republican Party and the right in general as we're kind of leading up to midterms and specifically the ongoing influence or perhaps lack thereof of kind of these conspiracy theory elements on the right. So obviously, we are in the midst of an ongoing congressional hearing on the January 6th Capitol riot. And um, I want to start there because if I recall, you were actually on the ground uh, reporting from the Capitol riot in 2020. And I believe you had sort of reported on some of the elements, uh, some of the, you know, QAnon and other conspiracy theory elements that were present there. Now, it's sort of my impression that, you know, there's been a, a bit of a kind of legal and social crackdown uh, on, on some of those elements since 2020, right? So uh, I guess the first question for you is, like, what is the state of QAnon and some of these other fringe extremists? groups uh, since 2020. Yeah, so, so I think, you know, for, for those of us outside of these movements, I think the, the state of things is pretty grim looking. Um, I, I think the, the right is really united with whether it's more moderate Republicans, uh, people who kind of see themselves mainly as Trump supporters, and, and then these fringier elements, we think about militias, white supremacist groups, uh, and QAnon. And of course, there's a lot of overlap between all those groups. I, I, I think right now they're all really united around winning in the midterms and getting Trump back in office in 2024. In the case of QAnon, Q, the sort of anonymous figure behind QAnon, hasn't posted since December 2020. So on one hand, you might think, well, that sounds like QAnon's over. But I think there's a lot of evidence that QAnon in many ways 
is stronger than ever. And and that it, for a long time they were laying the groundwork for sort of a QAnon without Q. <laughs> so for a while they he was putting these clues out and they would say, oh, we're learning about you know the way the world really is. We're learning that you know Hillary Clinton needs children and, and all this kind of stuff. But then when Q disappeared, these ideas people had had learned from Q kept going. And so they still continue to believe in them. And so now, you know, last year I went to these QAnon conventions where people were paying thousands of dollars to attend hundreds of people, something that had never happened uh, before that point. I think QAnon's kind of conspiracy theory thinking has also really been mainstreamed within the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of reasons that Republicans have said the election was stolen. But I think QAnon helped kind of uh, gain acceptance for that idea of just saying like, uh, well, you know, I can kind of choose my own reality, whatever I want. Uh, you know, furthermore, I, I think members of Congress, obviously Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert have been supporters of QAnon. And we're, we're slated to get at least one more in Congress, a, a gentleman from Ohio. So, you know, QAnon, essentially, I think I would sum it up as saying that QAnon has become a, a faction within the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh for a few years, there was this real question about, like, you know, is the Republican Party going to banish QAnon, whatever. And then in 2020, we saw Trump essentially say that they were right for many, you know, for a lot of the things they held. So so, so I, I, I think it's found a home in the Republican Party. Yeah, I, I want to stay on that question for a second, because I think what's interesting about, you know, groups like QAnon and then other far right groups like the Proud Boys is obviously on the one hand, I think they often express sort of hostility or skepticism toward like the mainstream GOP. But at the same time, as you just noted, like they have made influence in some way. So um, maybe talk a little bit more about uh, how these groups have managed to make inroads into the party since 2020. And, um, you know, obviously this year, just in the primaries, we've seen kind of a handful of election deniers and, you know, capital riot participants and, uh, you know, various conspiracists who have run for office in some way, right? So um, to what extent do these groups continue to influence the Republican Party? And um, where do you see them like most poised to take power this year? Sure. I mean, I, I think when we talk about far right groups, we really... I think they're making a lot of inroads in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I think going back to maybe the late days of the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration or, or the Obama administration, the story of the Republican Party has consistently been a failure of the party elites to, to say no to the, the party's fringes. And right. so the party keeps moving further and further right. They have no real power. And many, you know, sometimes they'll hold on to a primary, but, you know, since the Tea Party, for example, they have no power to, to say no, that person is too fringe. And often, you know, you think of other gatekeepers like potentially Fox News when they have tried to push people off, like when Fox News was more skeptical of Trump in 2016, a new outlet like Breitbart springs up. And so essentially the, the the party has no mechanism, no immune system to keep these people out. And oftentimes I don't think the politicians really care to because mm-hmm. they represent votes and they represent this grassroots energy. So I I think these people are, are making tons of inroads, especially at the local level. Uh, the New York Times had a story recently about Proud Boys essentially taking over the Miami Republican Party, which is a very prominent local party in the GOP. Uh, in the case of QAnon, so many of these grassroots activists uh, doing things like taking over school boards uh, because they're uh, you know angry about you know so-called groomer teachers or they're angry about mask laws. You kind of scratch the surface, and these are, are pretty hardcore QAnon believers. So I think. In 2022, I think we're going to see some more QAnon believers make it to Congress. Uh, but I think that the most important thing is going to be at these local levels where Michael Flynn, who's a former general, huge QAnon hero, after 2020, he and I think a lot of other QAnon supporters decided, 
well, you know, there isn't going to be this sort of climactic fascist moment that that we Q told us about, that they're not going to send uh, B- Barack Obama and John, John Podesta to Guantanamo Bay in this kind of big purge. Mm-hmm. So we, we sort of need to take action ourselves. And and for some QAnon believers, that meant violence, uh, whether on January 6th or in this these kind of lone wolf incidents. But for Flynn, he said, local action has a national impact is his slogan. And so that means encouraging QAnon believers to run for their school boards, to run to run for local office. And the other thing I would say is really they are really advancing at, on the local level in terms of election control. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of county clerks who who have power over elections who have been tied to QAnon. There's an entire slate of Secretary of State candidates in battleground states that were put together by a major QAnon figure. And so these sound like almost crazy ideas, like surely this wouldn't really happen. But then you look at what they're saying and and you look at the fact that it's likely to be a very heavily Republican year. And you realize that there could be a QAnon supporter in charge of elections in Mm -hmm. Arizona, Nevada, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I I actually wanted to ask you about that next, because, you know, uh, when when we think about midterms, like I think the way things are going for the Democrats right now, like it kind of seems likely that the Republicans will just end up winning quite a few races fair and square. Uh, But obviously, election denial uh, was a big thing that came out of 2020. Um, And and you had started to touch on this a little bit. Uh, How likely do you think it is that we will see, you know, sort of renewed efforts to subvert or challenge election results this year? I think it's hugely likely, you know, both in 2022 and 2024. I mean, when you listen to what, and, and these are not just QAnon people, but you listen to what people who, uh, people like Sidney Powell, you know, people who were in meetings with Trump, uh, what they're saying, these are sometimes people who believe that California was stolen from Trump. I mean, <laughs> these people are not even, they're not in reality. They're like on another planet. I mean, it, 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 it's just, it, it, for, for many of these people, I mean, at, at the fundamental level, it is the idea that democratic votes and democratic power, and then, you know, what that represents, which is often, you know, women voters, minorities, et cetera, that this is illegitimate for, for, mm-hmm. for their candidates to win. And so th- for, for these people, the idea that a Democrat could win anything like a contested race is just impossible to fathom. And so they have to assume that there was all this, this kind of shenanigans behind it. So and I think especially after 2020, for the the average Republican politician, I think there's a lot more pressure to announce these kind of phony investigations like the Arizona audit uh, mm-hmm. if you just want to survive a primary. So I think in 2022 and 2024, I think there's a very good chance that we'll see, uh, you know, maybe a Senate race, something like that, just become really, really hotly contested as Republicans kind of scramble for proof that it was stolen. And, and ultimately, I think it's less about finding the proof that it was stolen and more about sort of casting doubt on, on it and saying, well, maybe we'll just have to decide it in our state legislature, which, by the way, is controlled right. by Republicans. Right, right. Conveniently. <laughs> mm. um, so so just in terms of looking at kind of the state of the Republican Party on the eve of midterms, um, you've been alluding to these kind of fringe elements that exert influence here and there and how they kind of drag the party over to the right. Would you say that that is a sign that Trump continues to hold sway over the party? Or do you think that this is sort of part of a new tendency that's guiding the GOP? That's a great question. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors at play here. I think on one hand, there is this idea that for especially for these grassroots activists, Trump is kind of the end all be all. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they may like Ron DeSantis, but they look at him and say, well, he's younger than Trump. You know, he we could elect him in 2028, 2032, whatever. Uh, And they they see Trump as this kind of very heroic figure, often who brought them into politics in the first place. These are kind of like marginalized people who are not always normally, you know, showing up at at, at precinct committees in like 2004. And so for these people, I think a lot of it is Trump 
Trump and the way that their identities are built up in Trump and this idea that they kind of have to protect both his and their own egos by insisting the election was stolen, that he didn't Mm -hmm. lose it legitimately. Um, But on the other hand, I think it goes beyond that. I mean, I think that there is this... um, for a lot of people, there's this kind of like really reflexive skepticism and cynicism about the world. I think often, you know, with pretty good founding. Um, And it just makes them really like suspicious of everything and very kind of just sort of fed up with the state of the world. And I think they're looking uh, to sort of shake things up. And often that amounts to, you know, maybe they join the Proud Boys. Maybe they uh, they just become, you know, very committed to, you know, rooting out election uh, election fraud, supposedly. Um, mm-hmm. Washington Post had a great profile last week of a woman who's a very prominent grassroots activist in Georgia who was holding these events for David Perdue, the Trump Senate candidate. Uh, and yet, you know, in her meantime, she's diving into dumpsters outside election boards looking for shredded materials. I mean, so these are really it, 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 these these kind of really fringe, um, almost like deranged forces have like always existed in politics. But I think it's very rare that they've been really welcomed into the core of a party in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so maybe to go back to the January 6th hearings, which, of course, are, are still ongoing, um, I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of hope on the part of some Democrats that these hearings will kind of like uh, rile up their own base, right? Rile up the Democratic base, get people out to vote, sort of shock people into, you know, really sort of thinking like we can't let the Republicans back into power. Um, now, that said, you know, from my perspective, it sort of seems like the things that have dominated kind of public consciousness and public opinion polls um, over this year are things like inflation and gas prices, right? So I guess I personally am, am maybe a little skeptical that the January 6th hearings are going to like shock people into coming out to vote. Uh, I, I think I saw that, you know, something like 20 million people watched the first night of the hearings, which seems like a lot. But, you know, that kind of pales in comparison to the, you know, 73 plus million people who watched the first Donald Trump versus Joe Biden debate. Right. So it's it's kind of hard to say. Um at least for me. Uh, so I'm wondering, do you think that the January 6th hearings will have any effect on the upcoming midterm elections, whether that's to kind of whip the Democratic base or the Republican base? You know, it's a great question. I I think, um, you, you know, I'm not an election forecaster or anything. Yeah. You know, and, and I think Democrats would say they have other arguments for it, which is almost like they have a duty to do this. Um, and, and, you know, to some extent, I do think, I mean, it's not good for Republicans. I, you, you know, I wouldn't say, I mean, and, and for me, I think the evidence of that is how just absolutely apoplectic Republicans are about it and saying that there's been all these, these efforts to say, oh, it's so boring. Don't watch it. Don't watch mm-hmm, You know, really mm-hmm. trying to downplay it. On the other hand, I mean, if you go to the supermarket and you can't buy milk, uh, you know, it's not the QAnon shaman standing there preventing you from doing it. It's inflation. Right. And so, I mean, f- I think just practically, I think inflation and and the the slowing down of the economy and, and several other things I think are are really weighing on people a lot more than that. On the you know, it, although I I think you could certainly imagine you know maybe some kind of uh, I think maybe kind of the hardcore what we think of as kind of like the hashtag resistance voter perhaps uh, getting a little revved up. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a while I think since Biden has had a win and and mm-hmm. if this counts as a win uh, for him, I, you you know I think it's it's the first one he's had in a while. Yeah. So um. You know, I when it when it comes to fighting kind of conspiracism and extremism in the U.S., uh, is is there anything we can do about these far right groups? Uh, because and and what I'm getting at is, you know, the Biden administration like kind of made a big show of creating this short lived like disinformation governance board. Um, I, we all know that social media companies have been pretty aggressive in their efforts to kind of tamp down misinformation and you know crack down on hate speech. Uh, and and I'm just wondering if you think that those efforts make a big difference or, you know, 
know, what what is the best way of kind of fighting uh, this tide of disinformation and these especially these fringe and often, you know, violent and dangerous groups in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the disinformation board. I mean, what a disaster. And and I think that sort of sums up this like half-hearted approach to it where I think, you know, every so often maybe someone goes to a, a TED talk or something and they're like, you know, we should do something about disinformation. And they, they do this kind of botched effort. Um, it, yeah. I mean, look, I, I think it is, I think it would be wrong to say that what people see on Facebook and, and what they see elsewhere doesn't affect them in some way. I think um, often these things are packaged very compellingly. And just anecdotally, uh, I, I've talked to people who have lost family members to, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people who have lost family members to QAnon, or um, I think there's just very little information literacy in the country. On the mm-hmm. other hand, I think it's far more interesting and, and and I think solvable from a policy perspective uh you know maybe if if democrats ever like you know could do something in the senate but solvable um in terms of in in terms of the material causes that drive people to these things, I mean, yeah, it's you know, all, especially when you look at the cases of the people who died on January sixth, stuff like that. These are people who were really in like grimy, you know, very like uh, like dire situations in their own lives, and I think that's what led them to to QAnon and and to these these other kind of things that you can project your problems onto and say. In the case of QAnon, well, you know, it's not that I'm I'm this loser or like I'm a I'm a bad mother. That's why I lost custody of my kids or something like that. You know, it, it, I'm thinking of a specific case about uh, the, these women who uh, lose custody of their children and then become convinced that their children are you know being smuggled to Comet Ping Pong. But mm-hmm. th- 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 these ideas. I think they offer people these outlets. Um, you know, I mean, for me, ultimately, I think the the best cure for for these kind of movements would be a, a broader social welfare state that that kind of gets people out of these dire situations where you know they're alone all day uh, reading the internet uh, and, and just really depressed about their lives. But obviously, I think it's a lot easier. Uh, at least to look like you're taking action if you're like, we're just going to we're going to bug Facebook to, to, you know, take down these ads. Yeah. Well, that brings up another question, uh, which is, do you have a sense of kind of the, you know, um, class background, I guess, of the people who kind of get drawn into these uh, conspiracist or fringe elements? Because something that you just alluded to, which is that many of these people are experiencing, you know, financial difficulties or, you know, feel that their life is kind of going downhill in some way, I think is really interesting. And of course, that's not to excuse any kind of you know, violent or extremist beliefs that they might espouse. Um, but but do you have a general sense of, you know, what it is that, uh, I don't know, what kind what kinds of positions these people are in? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting, the idea of who gets into these conspiracy theories, and in particular, who breaks the law for them, and, and you know, right. really kind of like puts their lives on the line at that level. Um, you, you know, there, there's all these kind of studies about who, you know, often it's people who feel very marginalized and disrespected, not always with justification, right. um, you know, sometimes it's people who are just deep in conservative media. Let's, you know, one could think of a, you know, kind of a young white man who thinks who's being told, you know, white men have been, uh, you, you know, they're out in today's society. And, and that's why, you know, you didn't get into college you wanted. And you can imagine those gears turning. Um, but then, you know, sometimes they are people in desperate situations. I, I, I think of, um, you know, I, I went to this QAnon rally uh, in 2018 and this guy was saying, you know, oh, I've got cancer. Uh, but and you know I don't have insurance to get the treatment. But the good news is that I know the the this kind of nefarious George Soros cabal is holding back on the treatment, and soon Trump's going to arrest George Soros, and they'll have to release the cancer treatment. Uh, oh, right. and, 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 and so it's these kind of like I mean you know heartbreaking stories to hear, and also just how deluded someone can be. I mean I think in the case of January sixth, you know we're talking not just I mean these are not really like necessarily like uh, you know the salt of the earth rabble. Often right. these are you know kind of uh, middle class upper middle class people who are just completely red-pilled on conservative media i mean you know it's a it's very uh 
it's not a typical example, but you know, you can think of the people who flew the, flew to DC in a private jet uh, right. to go to the riot, and, and 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 so I think it draws in a lot of people. I think that really that resentment, whether legitimate or not, I think is often a, a really core to the, to it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, maybe just to wrap up, a final question for you is because, you know, we are in the midst of the ongoing January 6th hearings. Is there anything that's come up, uh, at least in the you know first round of hearings that was surprising to you or that, you know, kind of made you do a double take? Yeah, I mean, you know what? It, it, it's been remarkable watching all the footage. I I, I was there when uh, before the Proud Boys attacked, I noticed them out of their uniforms and I was like, oh, the Proud Boys are here and they're <laughs> shouting about attacking the Capitol, you know, probably not going to end great. Um, but obviously, I did not expect it to go as far as it did. I I think for me, kind of a random thing that popped up, we had a story about this on the Daily Beast, is that Sean Hannity proposed uh, pardoning Hunter Biden to like (laughs) smooth things over after January 6th. Uh, As though, I mean, a very kind of weird, almost like a dynastic understanding of of American politics, which which obviously has some dynasties in it, but but kind of this idea that congressional Democrats would be like, oh, it's okay, you tried to kill us. Like Hunter, (laughs) you know, you're dropping like a gun charge against Hunter or something like that. I mean, just really... um, Really remarkable, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, Will, thank you so much. Uh, Will Summer, again, is a politics reporter over at The Daily Beast and co-host of the podcast Fever Dreams. Will, good to see you. Thanks for having me. All right. So I will be back in just a moment with Professor Mikhail Wolf and Christian Robles-Baez to talk about the upcoming presidential election in Colombia. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in June and get your first month free. This month's selections are Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Freedom by Ben Tarnoff, A Radical Manifesto for Fixing the Internet by Deprivatizing It, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller, a historical biography based on the hugely popular podcast series, Humanitarian Borders, Unequal Mobility and Saving Lives by Polly Pallister Wilkins, An Interrogation of the Politics of Humanitarian Responses to Border Violence and Unequal Mobility, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, A Manifesto to arguing against the ideology of growth, and Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown, an indispensable guide to building a fighting feminist movement for reproductive freedom. Become a member today at versobooks.com. All right, so I am now here with Professor Mikhail Wolf and Christian Robles-Bias. They are both scholars over at Stanford and co-authors of a recent piece in Jacobin titled Gustavo Petro is the only Democratic choice in Colombia's presidential election. It's great to have both of you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. So just to dive in, uh, of course, at the end of May, Colombia had the first round of its presidential election and uh, left wing candidate Gustavo Petro, who you have both written about, is now in the lead. So maybe just to start, um, who exactly is Gustavo Petro and uh, why what exactly is he running on? And then a follow up is why is his win so significant? So, um, so Petro, I think, is uh, at the same time a traditional politician uh, in the sense that he's been in the public sphere for a while now. He's spent around 16 years in Congress, and he also was uh, mayor of uh, Bogota, the, the biggest city in Colombia, and Colombia's capital. Um, and he also was a member of a city city council in, in one of um, the cities close to Bogota. So he is now like a well-known politician. Um, 
But at the same time, he's also uh, an alternative politician because he does not belong to a traditional um, family. Uh, he's not being actually a member of any government before. Um, so I think he combines both things uh, at the same time. It's, it's without any doubt the most you know, important figure of the left in Colombia and perhaps even uh, one of the uh, most important figures in Latin America as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and his uh, agenda is very focused on progressive social change. I think his, his idea is to uh, you know, make Colombia more democratic, not only in terms of politics, but also in terms of economic and, and social terms. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, if you guys could say a little bit more about why his win is so significant, um, because something you point out in your article is that left wing victories have actually been pretty rare in Colombia, right? Especially compared to other Latin American countries. Uh, I think over the last decade, we've heard a lot about the kind of wax and wane of the pink tide. Uh, but Colombia has been notab- noticeably absent from that until now. Uh, so why is Petro's win so significant and why have left wing victories in Colombia been so rare previously? Yeah, I think if you look historically, Colombia has been kind of an outlier within South America. Um, the left has never taken power at the national level. So as Christian was saying, the left has had victories um, in, in local elections, congressional elections for mayor of, of big cities, but never at the presidential level. And I think that has to do with the unique nature of Colombia's political system, its civil conflict which has violently kept the left out of power. Um, you know, we can go back decades, if not centuries, um, to, to explain that. But I think just you know, to, to, to make the, the history uh, relatively simple and short, the left has been excluded using violence, um, often extreme violence. So this is very significant. Um, for Petro to be able to win uh, the presidency would be a real breakthrough in a very traditionally... Uh, right of center, not because the population is necessarily right of center, but because of the the kind of imposition that the right has uh, had in, in Colombia itself. Something that you both point out in your article is that in some ways, the bigger surprise in the last round of elections was that the populist right also did unexpectedly well. Um, talk a little bit about the candidate who came in second uh, and, and what you think his sort of surprise second place showing says about the state of Colombian politics right now. Uh, yeah, uh, Rodolfo Fernandez is a relatively new politician, at least in the national sphere. Uh, he's... Uh, become only uh, relatively known uh, recently. But interestingly, he has not become known out of his uh, managerial uh, skills or uh, his ability as a statesman. Um, He's being known mainly out of his, you know, extravagant proposal, um, out of his obscene uh, vocabulary, his obscene speeches, speeches, and uh, yeah, I think he's launched a populist uh, and, in several aspects, far right uh, agenda um, that had captured the attention of, of of the public because precisely that you know it's it's uh, uh, he has a very rude way to talk you know mm-hmm. uh, that captures the attention of of, of several people and uh you know it's a style 
that has worked for other politicians uh, in the region, such as Trump or or, or Bolsonaro. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's basically his idea. It's, he, he's he's a, uh, a businessman that you know presents himself as a uh, as someone who who's not a politician, who's a businessman, who who who's there not because of his personal interest, but just to uh, help um, Colombia and Colombia's people. So maybe you could both talk a little bit about um, what these two kind of leading candidates' respective constituencies or bases look like, uh, and and what do you think will be the most salient issues in the runoff when they face off against each other later this month? Yes. Yeah, so if you see the the map of the elections in Colombia, you see clear patterns uh, of votes. Uh, so Petro has uh, really strong support in the both coasts of Colombia, the Pacific coast and the Caribbean coast, uh, that happen to be the also the the, the poorest regions in Colombia. Mm-hmm. So, and if you see the the regions uh, in which Petro won, uh, and we also mentioned that in the article, are the regions uh, that has a higher level of poverty. Uh, in their populations, uh, so that's a, that's a significant and clear patterns. Like the poorest regions in Colombia um, are voting uh, mostly for for Petro and his idea of change, uh, but he also has an important support in big cities. So we also noted that, uh, with the only exception of uh, Medellin, who's had a tradition um, of supporting former. President Alvaro Uribe, uh, he's won in all big cities such as Bogota, Cali, Barranquilla, uh, Cartagena, Santa Marta, Valle do Par, um, among others. Um, and Hernandez, on the other side, has a great support uh, in the east part of the country where he's originally from and mm-hmm. where he was uh, mayor of, of one of the big cities there uh, called Bucaramanga uh, and also has big support in the small towns uh, of the east and center uh, part of the country, which uh, I think are the municipalities or the regions that perhaps have, you know, a stronger um, conservative uh, values or stronger, you know, um, feelings uh, against change and against the idea of change. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the runoff election uh, later this month, what do you think will be the most salient issues kind of dividing him from uh, Petro? Yeah, so I think uh, the idea that um, Petro is promoting uh, uh, a social and progressive agenda very clearly, you know, very structured. I think Petro is a person who has taken the time to think about the problems of the country who's you know spent uh, a lot of time studying and 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 traveling around Colombia listening to people whereas Hernandez uh, on the other hand has somehow proud himself um, out of his ignorance about the country he said mm-hmm. that he, he does not need to to know about the country about the, the geography uh, and interestingly he's presenting that, uh, as a sort of humbleness, you know, mm, he, he right. presents his ignorance somehow as humbleness, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the run is actually only in six days. Yes. Um, the, the campaign's been ongoing now, you know, for the, the second round for quite a while. 
And, you know, one thing about the dynamic of this is that Petro did not expect to face Hernandez in the second round. He expected to face the traditional right candidate, uh, uh, Fico Gutierrez, who was essentially a protege of Uribe, and Uribe has been around for two decades. And so he thought he, you know, he would be facing the establishment, which has been completely discredited, Mm -hmm. Duque, the the current right-wing president. So this has thrown him a loop uh, because this is a very unconventional candidate um, using, you know, the tricks of Bolsonaro and Trump, kind of like the, the U.S. know-nothing party of the late, the middle, uh, mid-19th century, you know, mm-hmm. like, like Christian said, you know, priding themselves on ignorance, using social media, TikTok, to, you know, for these bland sort of messages about anti-corruption, while, in fact, being just as corrupt as anybody else. Right. So um, I, I want to wrap up uh, by talking again about Petro's platform, because you end your article by noting that Petro, uh, you quote, is likely to push much harder than either Lula or Biden for progressive social change in Colombia if he wins. So what would a Petro win mean for working class Colombians? And then maybe a follow up is um, how do you think a Petro presidency might influence uh, other parts of Latin America? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, in the case of Brazil, Bolsonaro has pushed politics uh, far to the right. So in order like, to cut some sort of, um, you know, public, Lula has necessarily been forced to move to the right as well. So Lula is presenting now a way much moderate uh, discourse um, in order to have chances to to, to compete with, with Bolsonaro. So I think uh, Lula's agenda is way more moderate now than it used to be a couple of decades ago when he uh, was elected president of Brazil for the first time. Um, and I think Petro is also uh, pushing a relatively moderate agenda, but for Colombia's standards, it's seen as a, as a, as a more drastic agenda, right? He's directly talking about uh, agrarian reform, mm-hmm. uh, about you know basic incomes for for families, about um, public services in areas where people do not even have water. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you think that those are very basic uh, things uh, for certain Colombian. Uh, public that's seen as drastic, uh, and I yeah. think the idea that he's, uh, you know, a leftist uh, candidate with real chances to win is also significant. It's also somehow surprising and, mm-hmm. and, and seen as drastic. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, the, if Petro is able to to win in the second round, and right now uh, Christian knows better about the polling, but if it's very very really tight. It could come down, it could be a real nail biter and the right may, you know, use the Trump like, you know, claims of fraud, false claims of frauds to, to try to, you know, deny Petro the victory. But let's say he is victorious. The breakthrough, the leftist breakthrough in Colombia would be really, really a major, major, um, uh, major significance throughout uh, Latin America because it's never happened in Colombia. And I think it really be an indicator that a new pink tide is coming back mm-hmm. from the 2000s. Uh, because it never hit Colombia. I mean, Uribe was the sort of counter to the pink tide. You know, he was the one outlier, the right-wing populist at the time, uh, for the full backing of the United States through Plan Colombia and, and so forth. So he was the steadfast U- U.S. ally in the region. So for Colombia to go to the left, 
at this point, I think would really mark a significant change and, and really augur something different, hopefully would help Lula, you know, get back into power in Brazil, for instance, even if he's more moderate this time around. All right. Again, Professor Mikhail Wolf and Christian Robles Bias are authors of a piece in Jacobin called Gustavo Petro is the only Democratic choice in Colombia's presidential election. We will link that in the description box down below. Thank you both very much for your time. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I am now here with two very special guests. You know them quite well. Former Jacobin Weekends co-hosts, Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Guys, welcome back. It's really good to see you. It's been far too long. Did you guys forget about me? You know, I'm, Anna's Anna's still doing TYT. She's on. She's on. She's on the TV all day. I'm, Nando, I'm, I've been Nando, incognito. you do a little podcast action. I've seen you pop up from yeah. time to time. A little bit, very, but not. Your fans not my know face. where to find you. I don't show my face anymore. You know. It must be a little nice, though, to be able to, like, step back from all the mayhem um, and, you know, focus on other things. I'm a little jealous. I'm not going to lie. But I do catch yeah, woke yeah. bros because everyone's got to get a little Nando fix, you know? Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Uh, which is why I am super glad that you guys are back on the channel. Like I said, we've all missed you. Uh, I know the audience has missed you as well. We still get comments. Where is Nando? Where is Anna? Here you are. <laughs> So I wanted to have you guys on today uh, to talk about the recent election in California. Um, I didn't just ask you on because I missed you, but also because, as I think the audience knows, you guys are Angelinos. Uh, and so, you know, there, there was just an election with, I think, pretty surprising or unexpected results in both Los Angeles and in San Francisco. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll get to talking about both of those. Uh, and I think that the kind of immediate reaction that I saw from, you know, a lot of the news commentary was that uh, the election in California really hinged on the issues of crime and homelessness. And I know that there has been a lot of public opinion polling that has kind of backed that up and has shown that these are the two sort of main issues that voters were concerned about going into the election. So that said, I then also started to see some commentary after the results came out, um, mostly, I think, from liberals and progressives to the effect of, well, that's true. But on the other hand, voter turnout across the board was really, really low. So in some ways, you know, it's not it's it's hard to say if this election was actually a true expression of public sentiment. So I, I think that's where I want to start with both of you guys, um, because, again, you know, you're both voters in Los Angeles. Um, obviously, you're political commentators as well. So you've been sort of monitoring the pulse, I think. Uh, to what extent do you do you guys feel like the election did signal a kind of public backlash to the issues of crime and homelessness? Uh, Anna, maybe if you want to start and then Nano jump in. Well, I think crime and homelessness is absolutely front and center in the minds of voters in California, whether or not they showed up to vote. Uh, and that's reflected in various polls that were taken both before and after the election took place. And look, we're in California where you typically have incredibly low voter turnout anyway. If you look at some of the midterm election years from the past, uh, I think that the voter turnout that we experienced this year is comparable to what we experienced in previous um, you know, primary elections and midterm election years. And so I wasn't surprised by the low voter turnout, but I do think it's important to take a look at what um, you know, representative polling shows uh, Californians care about and are concerned about. And to be sure, 
there, I can't think of any Californian who hasn't been personally um, impacted in some way by what they're seeing happen in this state right now, right? And, and when I say impacted, I don't necessarily mean they have to be victims of crime themselves, but I can't imagine anyone living in California not noticing, um, you know, the latest version of what used to be called Hoovervilles, uh, which is massive homeless encampments um, and just lawlessness uh, within those encampments. And I know that a lot of people um, in the broad left uh, don't like any attention drawn to the fact that there is lawlessness. There, there are rapes happening. Um, there are bodies being found in some of these encampments. Uh, gangs are now taking advantage of these encampments and dealing drugs within them. Uh, they're also, in some cases, charging people living in the encampments uh, rent uh, up to $100. I mean, it's been a complete disaster and it's terrible. And then aside from the encampments, uh, you also have this huge uh, increase in crime, depending on what kind of crime we're talking about and which area of California we're talking about. In San Francisco, uh, you know, the reporting indicates that there's been a pretty significant uptick in what they're referring to is nonviolent crime. So mm -hmm. uh, vehicle thefts, things like that, burglaries. In Los Angeles, though, violent crime absolutely is up. And the argument or the counter argument to that from the broader left is, well, the numbers aren't as high as the 1990s. Right. OK, so what? So we just ignore it until it gets right. as bad as the 1990s. What a stupid argument. So, yeah, th I think that crime and homelessness is a huge problem that um, is front and center in the minds of voters here. Well, you don't have to have read an opinion poll to know that the issues of crime, but especially I would say homelessness is the almost single political issue right now that people talk about in L.A. I mean, I live in in Venice, which is, um, I would say, one of the flashpoints of of the homelessness crisis in not just L.A., but in America. Um, and it's just people around here. It's the it's the one thing they talk about. And also, when I talk to people who don't live in Venice, and and they're like, "Oh, where do you live?" And I'm like, "I live in Venice." And then they're like, "Oh my god, like how do you do it? You know, how do you how do you like how do you you know?" And I'm like, "Well, I mean, I have certain advantages. I'm six three, and you know, uh, and so I get I get away with more than most. But uh, no, it is it is absolutely the 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 kind of, um, you know, I, I, if I were to say that the, the election hinged on it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, or to the extent that the election was about anything, um, it was about this. Um, the, the, the turnout numbers to me indicate that, I mean, um, the fact that it wasn't like a super high turnout race. I mean, I just think that the, I think aside from the a, a percentage of the population who is very, um, I would say fired up about the homelessness issue. I think a lot of the population is also kind of feels bleak about it. Like that mm -hmm. there's just very little, there's very little political, you know, avenues, whether like, whether they're draconian or progressive to, to deal with it. I think I find that there's like a kind of resignation to, to it um, from a lot of people that, that, that it's kind of just a, this is what it is now. Uh, and it sucks. Uh, but yeah. either I'm, either I'm going to leave or, uh, but you know, that the politics can't fix it. Um, and you know, and, and that's that. And I, 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 you know, I think that when most people kind of hear solutions to, uh, the homelessness crisis, like no one really buys it, you know, like no one really thinks they're going to, they're going to stop it in any way. I mean, I, there's, you do see kind of these well-organized, 
neighborhood groups. I mean, here in Venice, there was a um, really well-organized uh, recall of a city council member named Mike Bonin, who, uh, w- which was just only, you know, uh, basically um, homeowners in Venice who were angry at Bonin over the homelessness issue, who tried to recall him. Um, it didn't end up work, but Bonin ended up resigning or not seeking re-election anyway um, for personal reasons, I, I, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I think that that's kind of the, the twin, uh, the twin vectors from a, from a purely political standpoint is just like a, a, a sort of a group of people who are very fired up about it and want to, and want to impose, you know, pretty, like whatever, whatever, like a, whatever it takes solution, you know, like, a, right. I don't, don't want to, you know, just whatever it takes. And then a bunch of people who are like, this is awful. Uh, and, uh, I don't know what to do about it. And I don't think, I don't really believe anyone who's going to be in power is going to do anything about it anyway. Yeah, I mean, that was something that struck me about the low turnout and specifically like the group of liberal commentators who are kind of like, oh, well, we, we, you know, we can't really draw conclusions about the election because turnout was so low. I was kind of like, well, low turnout in and of itself is telling you something, which is that in LA, nobody felt compelled to come out to vote for Karen Bass, right? Or in, you know, San Francisco, nobody felt compelled to come out and stop the recall of Chesa Boudin. I mean, I think that those things sort of speak to what you were getting at, Nando, that like, on the one hand, you you kind of have this like fired up uh, activist base of people who want to uh, either recall Chesa Boudin or install politicians who they think are going to be more law and order or who are going to crack down on homelessness. And then on the other hand, you have a kind of segment of the electorate that just feels, I don't know, uh, burned out or, you know, bleak, as you were saying. Um, But Anna, I want to uh, go back to something that you were saying about uh, kind of the perception of crime and also this um, line that I think we sometimes hear from liberals and progressives, which is that, you know, crime's not that bad or it's not as bad as it was in the 90s, I think is something that you said you had heard. Uh, This, I think, came up a lot when people uh, and especially liberals and progressives were looking at the recall of Chesa Boudin up in San Francisco. Um, I know that there was kind of a line of commentary that came out after the election that, you know, pointed out that actually crime went down during Chesa Boudin's tenure. Uh, I think that, you know, both violent crime and, you know, nonviolent or property crime went down, uh, depending on, you know, which statistics and which reports you look at. And, um, you know, I like I don't doubt that that is true. I'm sure that the crime statistics actually show that. Now, that said, there's obviously a disconnect between what the official crime statistics show and what people in San Francisco are obviously feeling. Right. And um, I want to bring up two. Uh, two tweets that I found because I think that they kind of encapsulate this sort of attitude or this kind of perspective from the media uh, and, and, you know, specifically from progressives that I've been hearing a lot. So uh, one tweet I found reads, congratulations to San Francisco's hysterically reactionary media for carrying this Coke-funded recall over the finish line, ensuring that reforming America's brutal criminal justice system drifts ever further out of reach. So obviously this tweet is kind of pinning the blame for the recall on both, uh, as, as he puts it, a reactionary media and Coke money, both of which I'm sure were factors in the race. Uh, and then another tweet I found, which is very similar, reads, the press got what it wanted. 
Crime went down, violent crime is down, and property crime is down since Chesa took office. And yet the press manufactured consent for the idea that crime was up and Chesa was to blame. We live in a post-truth world of the press's making. All right, so I, I have some thoughts on whether the media tricked people into recalling Chesa Boudin, but I, I definitely want to get your guys' thoughts first. So um, do, do you feel like the media manufactured the crime panic or to what extent do you think the media had a role in ginning up fears over crime? Uh, no, I'm not buying the media narrative at all. Uh, in fact, uh, the media, if you pay close attention to like, let's say legacy outlets, like let's say the LA Times, for instance, they really go to great lengths to minimize uh, what the reality is. That last tweet that you showed um, where it claims that both violent and property crime went down uh, is is not correct. Uh, so violent crime in San Francisco, based on the data that's available, uh, has gone down. So that was correct. But property mm -hmm. crime has, in fact, gone up. And oftentimes when there are complaints from people in the community about those things happening, like, for instance, uh, many people in San Francisco now leave the windows um, down in their vehicles mm -hmm. because of how many times their cars have been broken into. Um, I just had a conversation uh, with someone at, a, you know, a, a conference that I was covering who lives in San Francisco. And he talked about, you know, having that happen to him multiple times. And while you might be dismissive of that, I would argue that politically speaking, strategically speaking, the broader left is essentially engaging in a losing strategy by minimizing what it's like to be the victim of those types of property crimes. Because remember, we're talking about California, which is probably the most expensive state to live in when you take state taxes into account. We're dealing with a drought where we're now having our shower time monitored in some cases, mm -hmm. where uh, we're being told that we can't water our lawns or whatever um, on certain days of the week. Like we're being constantly squeezed in so many different ways. We're paying more and more money just to be able to live here. And then at the same time, to hear the broader left argue that, well, these property crimes are no big deal. This is just about quality of life issues. Who cares? Well, okay. I mean, if you think that the left is going to generate power, political power by, by using those arguments, you'd be mistaken. But the other issue that I take with the arguments and the tweets that you shared is that it completely erases um, the Asian community within San Francisco, which actually organized really well in, in an effort to recall, um, recall Chesa Boudin. And I want to share some data with you because I want to back up what I'm saying here. And let me also just note that this community was definitely acknowledged when there were attempts to make a point about how the Trump uh, administration was pushing these racist uh, anti-Asian narratives, which was true. But when mm -hmm. they wanted to make the point about that, they acknowledged what the Asian community in uh, San Francisco was experiencing. When it came to what their genuine concerns are, which is the uptick in hate crimes, all of a sudden their concerns are erased from the general media, including the legacy media, which I mentioned earlier. So as Noah Smith wrote in Substack, Boudin was simply tone deaf when it came to dealing with the wave of anti-Asian attacks that has afflicted the country and San Francisco over the last two years. There was the time where he said uh, that the murderer of an 84-year-old Thai man was simply throwing a temper tantrum. 
There was a time Chesa dropped charges against a man who videoed an anti-Asian hate crime for fun. And there was a time Chesa reduced charges against a man who beat a 69-year-old Asian man with a bat in Chinatown. And guess what? That had a huge impact on public opinion among the AAPI uh, community there. So, for instance, the San Francisco Standard Voter Poll found that 67% of Asian American and Pacific Islander voters uh, were in favor of the recall, which was significantly higher than other racial groups. Uh, in fact, the recall had uh, the support of 52% of Hispanic voters, which, by the way, is still a majority, 51% mm-hmm. of white voters, and um, only 34% of black voters. And overall, 57% of respondents supported the recall, 22% opposed the recall, and 21% were undecided. I give you those details because you can't ignore what... The community there genuinely is experiencing what they're concerned about. And again, if you're actually concerned about criminal justice reform, telling people that what they're experiencing is no big deal ain't the way to go. They're going to stop right. trusting you. They won't find you credible. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the when when people talk about like the the crime statistics and the perception of crime and and all that. I, 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 I get the sense that like crime goes up and down. I mean, they're, they, they, uh, it's, it's obviously nonlinear. Um, it, you know, there was a huge crime wave in the, uh, we, we, we had a sod hater on the show to talk about this, but, uh, you know, like kind of starting around the sixties, the uh, all throughout kind of the 1980s and then kind of crime, uh, started going down and, and maybe there's an uptick now, like there's, there's these kind of big macro trends and it's important to understand that I really think that the perception of crime, um, which is obviously a very real political phenomenon, whether the crime is up or down or not is almost immaterial. The perception is real. And I, uh, my kind of theory as to why perception of crime is real basically everywhere, but especially in, in California, um, is the homelessness issue. It's just that, you know, that is up. That is 100% up, uh, from even the 1990s, um, when crime was way higher. Um, and I think that the homelessness issue is a, visible reminder of crime that is a daily reality for a lot of people in a way that, you know, even even when crime is at its highest, the chances of you being mugged or whatever are still relatively low on any day on any given day. Um, Whereas if you live in LA or in San Francisco, the chances of you interacting or seeing uh, a homeless person um, is, uh, is, is basically 100%, you know, (laughs) if you just go out onto the street. Um, And I think that that is definitely, um, you know, and again, I think that to me, the, 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 the kind of root issue to a lot of this stuff is the homelessness crisis. I mean, again, I think arguing about whether people's perceptions of crime is real or not is, is, is definitely losing battle because all you got to do is see is that it is real. Um, and then you got to figure out what you do about it. And to me, um, the, the real reason for that, um, whether legitimate or not, it doesn't matter is, is that, that homelessness is a kind of daily reminder of, of crime and the potential of crime. Can I I um, jump in real quick? Because I think there's a lot of truth to what Nando's saying. And I think, and it makes me feel like a little sick 
acknowledging how realistic that argument is, because the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people suffering in California. As I mentioned, it's an incredibly expensive state to live in. We do have a housing crisis, no question Mm -hmm. about that. Um, And there are different ideas in regard to how to build enough housing to to keep up with demand. And yes, nimbyism is a huge problem in the state as well. Uh, But there's there are other elements to it that I think have been um, downplayed or ignored, uh, primarily the very real issue of drug abuse and the very real issue of untreated, undiagnosed mental health um, issues among the homeless population. And so it's not just that uh, like, oh, Californians are seeing poor people and just by the very nature of having to see poor people, uh, they think crime is up. No, mm-hmm. it's because of what drug abuse and, you know, untreated mental illness tends to lead to within these encampments. And I think part of the reason why there's such low voter turnout is because we've heard possible solutions, nuanced solutions, uh, allegations of passionately wanting to do something about this from our elected lawmakers over and over and over again. And the situation has only gotten worse. And it's gotten to a point where you know, people are afraid to speak out because if you speak out, you're automatically labeled a reactionary. But I think that this is just as important as any other bread and butter issue. People want to live in safe communities. They want to enjoy their, you know, public parks, which their taxpayer money pays for. They want to feel safe walking their dogs. I was sexually assaulted recently when I was walking my dog and picking up his his poop. As I was doing it, um, two guys walked by. One of them grabbed me by my my hips and started to dry hump me in front of, you know, just out there out in the open. And I had no way of protecting myself. And it feels so demoralizing and terrible to have those instances minimized by people who purport to be on the left. I, I want to pick up on that by, you know, um, asking you what you think a kind of better response from progressives and from liberals might be, um, because I think about this all the time, honestly. Like, I think that I've expressed to you that I have often been frustrated by, you know, kind of the knee-jerk response of many progressives to, as we've been talking about, say that public concerns over crime are only driven by, you know, reactionaries or by the media or that they, that, you know, crime is fake, basically, or that, you know, uh, the statistics that, you, you know, the statistics, the statistics show that there's no crime wave happening or whatever. I mean, even if those things are true in some cases, uh, although as you've pointed out, like often it's not as clear, it's not as clear cut as people make it out to be. Um, even if those things are true, like I just don't think that that's the way that you uh, address people's concerns, right? And I will also point out that, you know, when you look at the demographics uh, and the socioeconomic backgrounds of people who express concerns about crime, the people who... The, the voters who consistently express concerns about crime are overwhelmingly working class. Uh, they tend to be black and Latino. Uh, I think that the demographic that consistently says they don't care that much about crime or they don't see it as an issue is white liberals, right? So there's kind of like a weird thing going on where um, I think many well-meaning progressives who obviously don't want to do any, you know, racist dog whistling or don't want to, uh, I don't know, feed into right-wing narratives about crime, kind of end up performing a, a sort of, I don't know what you would call it, but but sort of end up mischaracterizing uh, who's actually concerned about crime. So 
All that said, I also want to acknowledge that obviously the left has an uphill battle, to say the least, when it comes to the issue of crime, because the right can come in and they can say, we need more police, we need you know stiffer sentences, we need uh, to throw more people in jail. And that's actually relatively easy for them to do like tomorrow, right? Uh, but the left solution is things that are more long-term uh, because, you know, we're calling for things like uh, public investment, expanded public investment, uh, social provision, a stronger social safety net. Uh, and those aren't things that you can actually just turn around tomorrow. So that's all to say that obviously the left, broadly speaking, is in a pretty tough position when it comes to this particular issue. And I don't think that there are any easy answers, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, um, you know, being kind of on both sides of the issue, uh, how you think that, you know, progressives should be talking about this issue? Well, I first off, let me just say, I agree that the root causes are critical to address. And honestly, the way I see it now is there are short term and long term goals, right? So the long term goal, clearly, because of how little power the genuine left has, the long term goal is, 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 is addressing those root causes and building a robust social safety net, which includes things like Medicare for all. So people right. who have mental health issues are getting the treatment that they need, um, ensuring that we do have the housing necessary uh, to uh, keep up with demand and to ensure that um, it's as affordable as possible. And, and by the way, when I say affordable, I don't mean what we're also experiencing in California, which, which is making me like want to rip my hair out. You know, there is a problem with nimbyism. But there's also a problem with what tends to happen when when zoning laws are loosened. And we tend to put the cart before the horse. What I mean by that is if we don't have certain protections in place to ensure that the housing that ends up getting built is genuinely affordable housing as opposed to like at market housing or luxury condos and apartments, then we're going to be screwed. Every time we see a new building go up, it's not affordable housing. They'll say it's mixed use. A tiny, tiny percentage of the units might be affordable housing, but even that's not guaranteed. And so it's really important for us to think about how to do things methodically, strategically. I'm all for uh, loosening the zoning laws. We absolutely mm -hmm. need to do that. But we also have to have regulations in place to ensure that we ban foreign investment, i.e. money laundering into um, our real estate here. Uh, we need to ensure that it is, in fact, affordable housing and not luxury uh, units. OK, but putting all that aside, short term, I have seen models that have worked. But interestingly enough, there are activist groups in California that have protested them, even though it makes no sense. So uh, there have been these tiny home communities popping up um, in Los Angeles. Uh, there's one not too far from where I live. And I think it's freaking wonderful. Like there were NIMBYs that were like, no, we don't want this. It's going to generate crime in our area. And I was like, no, these people need housing. And it's not just housing. It's also services for people who live within this tiny home community. It's been wonderful. And I think that we can replicate this model um, and do so quickly. And that's really the part of the equation that's super important because Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles um, decided, well, you know, we're going to take this extra revenue generated from HHH, which is a ballot initiative that Californians uh, or people in Los Angeles overwhelmingly approved. It raised our taxes to build more housing. Well, he ended up uh, doing all these sweetheart deals to his real estate developer buddies and each unit unit is costing over $800,000 and it's taking far too long to build it. 
The tiny home communities um, are obviously more affordable. We can get them up quicker to, you know, get people off the streets as soon as possible. Um, but there's a very robust uh, protest against it because activists think that putting people in tiny homes is somehow inhumane, even though like there's like a whole hipster trend of people like choosing to live in tiny homes. Right. So I don't really get it. So, I, you know, there are things we can do in the short term that could could work. Um, the question is, are we willing to do it? And there's a tricky question regarding, well, what do you do if you offer housing to someone and they refuse to take the housing because it would require them to get clean, right? Like, let's say they're addicted to a drug or whatever. I'm in the camp of, no, you can't just like, like waste away on the streets and you can't just camp wherever you want you got to take the housing. So I would compel them to take the housing and get clean. So yes, I would force uh, rehabilitation. Um, I, I want to bring Nando back in uh, just to kind of wrap things up on, on this last question, which is, uh, you know, uh, another sort of narrative that I've seen sort of post-election is a lot of people are saying, well, you know, the, the election in, in Los Angeles and the election in San Francisco sort of show that these cities are not as liberal or like not as progressive as people make them out to be. And they point out some of the things that you just talked about. Uh, they're obviously, you know, very wealthy developers, NIMBYs, uh, various real estate interests that are kind of blocking uh, progressive housing changes. Uh, but I, I would also point out, so I think that that may generally be true, but I would also point out, and I come back to this time and time again, Bernie Sanders won both Los Angeles and San Francisco, right? Now, I'm not saying that that proves like, oh, these two cities are, you know, the most progressive in the nation, or, you know, that proves that they're, they're all, they're always going to vote a certain way. But I'm wondering, like, what you guys see as the future of left politics in California, and specifically in these two cities. Uh, can something about Bernie Sanders win, plus this recent, uh, you know, primary election tell us anything about what's going on with left organizing and left politics in these two cities. Uh, maybe Nando, if you want to start. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that broadly speaking, it is true that California is, is more progressive, but I think it, what, what, what really happens is that the smaller, the political unit, the, the kind of more, um, you know, the, frankly, the more reactionary it is, but also the, the, the more dependent it is on, on, on local, in this case, real estate money. So uh, I see it all the time here where like, and, and you've seen it like in, in neighborhoods all across America, like it has to do with our kind of federal system or where power is diffused um, to local communities in, in a way that um, allows kind of, you know, 50 neighbors, if they're really well organized um, to block a lot of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, that was like the whole premise of that, uh, Oscar Isaac show, uh, show me a hero, uh, that these fights can, can be really be determined by a, a relatively small number of people. I'm not, I'm not trying to make the, the sort of broader point about Boudin or, or, or anyone else, uh, in this, but this is just a dynamic that has played out over decades. Um, not just in California, but in, but in a ton of cities across the country that, um, because, um, a lot of power really rests in the relatively small political uh, communities that it's much easier for and and conversely the smaller the political unit the harder it is to get as much people invested in it because it requires a lot more um, effort time uh, you know education to be able to get to figure out what the hell is going on whereas national politics is in a way much easier you know like oh, I like that guy I don't like that guy whatever right. um, that, you know, these kind of local uh, races or or even just like, you know, 
zoning initiatives or ballot initiatives are just much more complex and Byzantine. And, you know, the, the, the higher the Byzantine-ness of it, the, the harder it is to get regular people in, invested in it. Um, and people with, the, with an extreme vested interest um, just have a huge advantage. So, um, you know, that's why I think like the point of, of that Bernie won in California, while kind of, you know, at these local levels, uh, like reactionary housing policy uh, tends to win the day. And I'm not talking about just now. This is true always. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, is, has to do mostly with that, I would say. Um, so uh, I think that the future of, of left politics in California, I mean, I, I, I just, California is such a strange system the way it's set up. I mean, there's a million, there's a million kind of oddities about it from these kind of statewide ballot in- initiatives, the way, um, taxes are handled that that are kind of structural bulwarks against uh, a left politics. I still believe that you know I'm I'm a I'm I'm still a Bernie bro, card carrying, you know, uh, tr- tried and true, and um, I do still believe that Bernieism is is kind of the best way to do it, and 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 I do think that um, the potential for uh, like a sort of Sanders esque uh, movement uh, around kind of especially around the uh, Latino communities in the American Southwest has a lot of potential, but um, the the in the near term, uh, the political avenues for any left politics uh, in California and really anywhere <laughs> in America are very bleak. I mean, there's just there's just no there's just no opening uh, at all, and I don't know. I, I just I just don't think it's the moment right now. Like it's just not. You know, the, the moment pa- there was a moment and it passed and we lost and and uh, and now we're now we're in now we lost. <laughs> it sucks. Right. And it, things might change and things sometimes change more rapidly than we would think. Uh, but it's certainly not right now. Yeah, I, I overwhelmingly agree with you. But uh, I do think that it, we should take this moment as a teachable moment and, and learn from mistakes made along the way. And I do genuinely think that, you know, underestimating uh, the genuine or or the sincere concerns of working people is is just a bad way to go. Um, I would just say one of the biggest mistakes we could make is to just become too dogmatic uh, rather than taking a look at what we have in front of us and figure out what we can do to make people feel secure financially, safe within their communities. These are things that everyone wants. And if the left brands itself as the, the, the group that wants to essentially turn, you know, the bad guys into victims and the victims into bad guys, again, I just genuinely don't see that as a winning strategy. Yeah. Yeah. They should follow the Jacob. The, the, ja- the official Jacobin line was uh, lower the crime rate. Right. That was the I remember when Jack- was. the crime issue. You know, uh, I take my I take my orders from the common turn. You know, if, uh, <laughs> if Comrade Bhaskar says uh, lower the crime rate, then the we got to do you it. Know, that's that's what I, I don't you know, I'm, I'm enough of a I'm enough <laughs> of a soldier to, to just take the orders, you know, like I, I think more people should just take the orders from 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 the Jacobin HQ. And, um, and I think we'd be better off. I do want to quickly shout out that issue. Uh, it was a few issues ago, but thank you for the reminder, Nando. I actually meant to give that issue a shout out um, because there is a great editorial in there that talks about some of the the themes that we've been discussing. Um, so we'll go ahead and throw that cover on the screen. Uh, and on that note, guys, it was great to see you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and hopefully we'll get you back soon. Yeah, anytime. Thank you. 